If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to turn in your copy of God's inerrant, inspired, and infallible word to Genesis 42. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage beginning on page 35. Page 35, Genesis 42 of the Bibles provided. You know, some people really like scavenger hunts. Uh, some thrive on the mystery of the game. Uh, others thrive on uh, competition against other people or teams. Not me. I mean, if I'm going to give myself to a scavenger hunt, there's got to be a prize at the end, like French fries or ice cream, something, something like that. Uh, but um, scavenger hunts, you know, they, they all have one thing in common. Um, someone has designed the hunt leading from one place to the next until you come to the end and goal of the hunt. And sometimes I think that life is a bit like a scavenger hunt. Um, God is leading us from one place to the next, uh, different phases of the journey, follow trials, bring their trials, they bring their joys, but our life's journey is divinely designed. And God is the goal. He is bringing us to himself. And that's what we're going to see today in Genesis 42, that God is leading us to himself. We are, as you may know, in the middle of the final major section of Genesis, which focuses on Jacob and his sons. Chapters 37 to 50 recount God's faithfulness to the men who will be the 12 tribes, the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. And as we've discovered along the way through this section of Genesis, there's a, there's a twist in the tale. The sons of Jacob, they've sold one of their brothers, Joseph, into slavery in Egypt. Uh, Joseph's path has been surprising. He went from the pit the prison and to the palace, as we saw last week. Joseph, he had rightly interpreted Pharaoh's dreams. They had foretold of coming famines, and Joseph had given a Pharaoh a good idea of what to do with that coming famine. In the years of abundance, those seven years leading up to it, store grain up, and then when the famine comes, you can spread the grain out. And as Genesis 41 closed, we studied last week, the whole world was coming to Joseph, eating really out of the palm of his hand. The world was rescued through Joseph. And all of this has been part of God's sovereign plan to rescue Jacob and his family, Joseph's brothers, from death in the famine. And it is essential to the purposes of God to rescue Jacob and his family from death because bound up with this family, this, as we've been seeing, this very dysfunctional family, bound up with this family are the promises of God. Especially the promises to send the Messiah who will defeat sin and Satan and death. If this family dies, then all hopes of a Savior of the world is lost. But God will not let His promises fail, because He can never fail. Now here's the thing. As God is working His purposes and His promises out, He's also working on us. You, you realize that, right? As God is working His purposes and His promises out, He's also working on us. As God sovereignly sends the sons of Jacob down to Egypt, He's actually working on them, convicting them of their sin. As the brothers arrive in Egypt, God is sovereignly working on Joseph, growing in him a forgiving heart. As the brothers return home, God is sovereignly working on Jacob, the father and patriarch of this family. God's working to remove an idol from Jacob's heart. God is preparing the hearts of the brothers, of all the participants in this story, to be reconciled to one another. You see, the teaching of this text is that it is God who is leading his people to rescue and reconciliation. 
If you have come to know God and trust in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, then you know that this is true. It may be your experience that God has led you to Himself through a winding road like Joseph. It may be your experience that God has led you to Himself through a humble confession of brokenness and sin, like we'll see in Joseph's brothers. Or it may be your experience that God has led you to Himself through a dead end, like we'll see with Jacob. This is how our great God works. He leads His people to rescue and reconciliation. And beloved, here is the sermon in a sentence. When God leads you through difficult circumstances to disclose your guilt or to a dead end, God is leading you to himself. God is leading you to himself. We'll study Genesis 42 in three sections under three headings. There should be an outline, a full outline there in the bulletin provided to help you follow along. But let's begin with our first point. God leads through difficult circumstances. Follow along as I read Genesis 42 verses 1 to 6. Genesis 42, verses 1 to 6. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So, ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin. Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over, all, over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Well, the, the opening verses, uh, the verses open really with the sons of Israel standing around before Jacob, and they close with the sons of Israel on the ground before Joseph. Um, verse 1 is something of a surprise. Jacob hasn't been the focus of the narrative for quite some time. And suddenly he appears, and for good reason. If this family is going to survive the famine that's come to Canaan, they're going to need their patriarch to come up with a plan. And Joseph's admonition there in verse 1 is as comical as it is concerning. He basically says to his sons, don't just stand there, do something. Right? Act like men, provide for your family so that we won't die. Go to Egypt and get grain so that we might live. And beloved, this is a basic duty of a husband and household head to make sure that his family is fed. Call me sexist if you will, but the Bible consistently lays the responsibility of providing for the household at the feet of a husband and household head. Just think of 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, where we read, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So brothers, this doesn't mean that you must provide steaks every night or a house that's been remodeled by Chip and Joanna Gaines, but it does mean that your duty and responsibility to provide food and clothing, and some kind of roof to cover your family is biblical and faithful. And sisters, because at some level you're all material girls living in a material world, let me encourage you in the virtue of contentment. In that same letter where Paul chastises the lazy man, he also says this in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 to 10, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, 
and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Sisters, a, a life with a godly man that is meager and mere can be really fruitful for God's kingdom and fulfilling to your soul. Well, Jacob's sons, they're on the brink of failing to provide for their families in the midst of this famine. A famine, or more generally, hard economic times are no excuse for a failure to provide. This is our first clue that God is up to something. These brothers of Joseph are grown men. They have families of their own, families that they should be finding a way to feed. Why haven't they already planned a journey to Egypt? Could it be that their consciences are racked with guilt when they hear the word Egypt? I mean, do you remember when they sold their brother into slavery? They sold Joseph? In Genesis chapter 37, verse 25, we were told that they saw caravan of traders going down to Egypt. Then three verses later, we were told that they sold Joseph to that caravan of traders who were headed down to Egypt. Perhaps the reason for their dithering and their delay was because they had sold their brother and sent him to Egypt, and they felt guilty. Whatever the case may be, in verses 3 to 5, we see that they now make their way down to Egypt to buy grain. It's, um, it's hard for us to imagine what it is like to go through a famine in our present context. The luxury of Instacart is just a few clicks and swipes away, right? I mean, even if the um, immediately surrounding counties ran out of groceries, we could hop in a car or take a bus to a nearby state and probably find food. But these brothers are likely traveling by camel or donkey. They're going a long way, and it will take a long time, and they've got to carry a lot of stuff back with them. They're going down to Egypt, and they're going to bow down. They're going to be brought low, humbled, and humiliated. They will, in some respects, traverse the same path that they put their brother Joseph on. As we've thought about several times in the book of Genesis, the only way to be lifted up is to be brought low. They were facing difficult circumstances in that famine back home, and they would face difficult circumstances in Egypt. And all of this would be part of God's preparation for their reconciliation with their brother. Moses gives us a critical detail there in verse 4. Jacob doesn't send his youngest brother, Benjamin. Sadly, Jacob hasn't changed in some ways. In the past, he played favorites with his wives. He should have only had one, but he played favorites with his wives. And he played favorites with his sons. And now that Joseph is gone, his formerly favorite son, Benjamin has been exalted to the status of the favored son. And take a look at what Jacob feared there in verse 4. He feared that harm might happen to him. That word for harm can also be translated mischief or evil or hurt. One translation even puts Jacob's fear in the language of some accident happening to Benjamin. Harm came to Joseph, and Jacob was not willing to risk any harm coming to Benjamin. I mean, maybe he suspects these brothers. Who knows? In verse 5, Moses, he, he situates these ten brothers among the crowds coming into Egypt. They are among the others who came. And you almost wonder if Joseph is watching and waiting for his brothers. You almost wonder if Joseph is intentionally orchestrating the purchase of grain in the hopes that he might get a glimpse 
of his family. I mean, notice what verse 6 says. It says that Joseph was the one who sold to all the people of the land. As it just so happens, Joseph's brothers come and bow themselves before him with their faces to the ground. God used a family an incredibly difficult circumstance to bring these brothers face to face again. Now, this was a necessary step, not only for their reconciliation, but also for their rescue from death. Jacob wasn't kidding when he told them to go get grain so that they might live and not die, there in verse 2. The fulfillment of God's promises in sending his Savior and Messiah hinged on the children of Israel surviving this famine. Do you see God's leading through this difficult circumstance? Dear friend, if you have turned up here today because you are walking through one difficult circumstance after another, could it be that God is leading you to himself? And dear Christian, if you're finding yourself walking through one difficult circumstance after another, let me encourage you to dare to hope that God will bring you through. And if nothing else, he will certainly show himself faithful to you. In verses 1 to 6, we have seen that God's leading the children of Israel to rescue and reconciliation through a difficult circumstance, through this famine. In verses 7 to 26, we see that God leads the children of Israel to rescue and reconciliation as they disclose their guilt. God often brings us to the point of brokenness so that we confess our sin and our guilt. And that's certainly how God prepares us for our reconciliation to Him. Follow along now as I read Genesis 42, just verses 7 to 17 for now. We'll stop at verse 17, but begin there in verse 7. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed. And he said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, No, my Lord. Your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man, in the land of Canaan, and behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you, and let him bring your brother, while you remain confined, that your words may be tested. Whether there is truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. Well, in these verses, verses 7 to 17, there, there are kind of two major themes that really jump out. Recognizing and testing. Verses 7 and 9 are all about Joseph recognizing his brothers, but his brothers failing to recognize him. We're told in verse 7 that Joseph treated his brothers like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Uh, this is not primarily for the purpose of revenge, but primarily for the purpose of keeping his, Joseph's, identity concealed. Now, I say it's not primarily for the purpose of revenge, because Joseph's a sinner. There can maybe be some of that underneath what he's doing. 
There's no doubt deep hurt that's being really dredged up for him. You can treat someone like a stranger and not speak harshly to them, but, but that's what Joseph's doing, speaking harshly to them. The Lord still has some work to do in Joseph's heart to bring them him to the point of reconciliation with his brothers too. In the last chapter, we saw really the beginning of that preparation with the naming of his children, particularly Manasseh. The name of Joseph's son means to forget. And we reflected on the idea that forgiveness is growing in Joseph's heart. So I think that we can all really understand it, what Joseph's experience here. I mean, have you ever thought you've been ready to forgive someone? Someone that sinned against you, and yet they, they come to you, you see them, and, and you, you speak perhaps harshly to them. Uh, you know, emotion welled up within you, anger perhaps welled up within you, and you spoke more roughly to that person than you had wanted or really anticipated, or that was warranted. Well, God is leading these brothers to reconciliation, and there's work for him to do in each of their hearts, including Joseph. And if there's someone who's sinned against you, I want to encourage you to pray that the Lord would prepare your heart for reconciliation. Pray that the Lord would guard you from speaking harshly with them when you meet. As I said, Joseph, he primarily wants to keep his identity concealed. He wants to keep his identity concealed so that he can discern whether or not these are the same old deceitful and scheming brothers who sold him into slavery some 20 years ago. You realize that, right? Joseph was 17 when his brothers sold him into slavery. And if you add up the years that have passed between chapters 37 and, and this chapter, you get about 20 years. What was it that precipitated the sale of Joseph into slavery? It was his dreams. I mean, back in Genesis 37, verses 5 to 11, Joseph had a pair of dreams in which his brothers came and what? They bowed down before him. And in verse 9, we're told that Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them bowing down before him. What an incredible and overwhelming moment this must have been for Joseph. I mean, you've got to believe at this moment that all kinds of thoughts are running through his mind. You've got to believe that Joseph is not merely recognizing his brothers, but that perhaps he's beginning to recognize what God has been doing throughout the whole of his life. You can imagine him putting the pieces of the puzzle of providence together. Joseph's beginning to think, perhaps pray, Lord, this is why you gave me those dreams, to save my family from death. Lord, this is why you let them sell me into slavery, so to send me ahead of them, to help them. Lord, this is why you, you sent me to prison, so that I would get connected to the king through his cupbearer. Lord, this is why you set me over this nation and on this throne and had me manage the grain so that I could care for my family. Beloved, you will not immediately understand what God is doing. Sometimes you will not immediately understand what God is doing. Like Joseph, it might take 20 years for you to even begin to understand why God led you down a certain path. I'm reminded of an old hymn written by a depressed Christian. It's number 73 in your hymnal. In a couple of places it says this, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread, they are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, 
but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. You recognize that that's what God has been doing in Joseph's life, right? That behind what appeared to him to be a frowning providence, being rejected by your brothers, sold into slavery, put in prison, behind all of that, God has hid a smiling face, preparing to bring about this family's rescue. Christian, you may not understand what God is doing today, but one day you will. He will at least explain it all to you in glory. And though your heart may feel empty today, it will be full on that day. After Joseph recognizes his brothers, he tests them. He calls them spies there at the end of verse 9. And they immediately claim, get this, that they are honest men and that they've never been spies. I mean, think about that claim for a moment. Do honest men sell their brother into slavery and lie to their father about it for 20 years? Of course they're spies. I mean, listen to Genesis 37, verse 18, when they were preparing to sell Joseph. Verse 18, Genesis 37. They saw Joseph from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. I mean, that's exactly what spies do. The charges that Joseph lays at their feet are charges that they are guilty of. And this interrogation is being designed by Joseph and ultimately by the Lord to provoke them to become honest men. And the first way you become an honest man is by disclosing your guilt, admitting your wrong, confessing your wickedness, transgression, and sin. They are not ready to disclose their guilt, are they? I mean, look at verse 13 again. When they give Joseph their family background, they simply say that one brother is no more. Come on, guys. Why is one brother no more? It's because you're not honest men, because you sold him into slavery, and because you deceived your father. This is why Joseph tests his brothers. That's what a test does, you know. It pulls knowledge and truth out of you. Joseph is trying to pull the truth out of his brothers. And Joseph's test is going to send his brothers down the same path that he went through. They've come down to Egypt, somewhat against their will. They've been accused, and now they're being thrown in jail, just like Joseph. Joseph's initial design to kind of pull the truth out of them and lead them to disclose their guilt is to lock them all up for three days and then send one brother home back to get their youngest brother. That's how this test is initially designed. But let's see what happens from here. Follow along as I read. Let's read verses 17 to, uh, to 26. Genesis 42, verses 17 to 26. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this, and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody. And let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households. And bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. They, then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. 
So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept, and he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. In these verses, Joseph, he continues to conceal his identity from his brothers. While the brothers actually reveal the truth about what they have done to Joseph, they finally confess and disclose their guilt. And Joseph, he does something really interesting. After three days, he changes the design of his plan. Initially, all but one of the brothers was going to remain confined in Egypt. But now, the plan is to let all of them go, while one remains behind as a substitute in their stead. Do you remember what Joseph's brothers did with him when he was in the pit? They changed the plan on him too. They were going to leave him for dead, but then they sold him. Now, I don't think Moses knows the significance of this pattern of being in a pit and three days. I don't think he knows the significance of this pattern as it relates to Jesus, the coming Messiah. But it is interesting that we have several features of the work of Jesus brought together here. There's three days in prison, which in those days was often a pit in the ground. And one man suffers for the many so that they may go free. And I don't think we should make too much of this, but it is suggestive that God is beginning to plant the seeds and patterns of redemption in the Old Testament so that they will come to full flower in the Lord Jesus Christ in the new. Joseph, he's trying to lead these brothers to do the right thing. Notice what he says there in verse 18. He says, I fear God. Joseph is essentially saying that he's a man of integrity and honesty. That's how those who fear God live. Have you lived a life of honesty and integrity? Do you fear God? This is precisely what is in question with respect to these brothers. They haven't been men of honesty or integrity. They haven't confessed their own uh, deceitfulness, transgression, transgression, and sin. They have been living a lie before their father for at least 20 years. And their deceit has revealed that they don't fear God. And do you see how all of this is aimed at leading them to disclose their guilt? And that's actually what they do by God's grace in verse 21. A confession comes off their lips. They say that they're guilty concerning Joseph. And this is so important in apologies. We shouldn't simply say that we're sorry. That's only an expression of how we feel. Saying you're sorry is only an expression of how you feel. We should also say that we were wrong and that we've done wrong. That's owning up to your guilt. These brothers disclose their guilt. They feel guilty because they are guilty. What they did was horrible. I mean, we see here, Joseph was crying out to them from the pit, and they were so hard-hearted and filled with hatred. They were so cold-blooded toward their brother's cries that they ignored him, and they sat down to eat. That's what we learned in Genesis 37. And when they say in verse 21 that this is why this distress has come upon us, they're acting like they've got a bad case of karma. Like he went through that distress and now we've got this distress. But that's not how God's world works. Sometimes people really do get away, from, uh, get away with heinous evil in this life. Now God will mete out 
their judgment when they come to stand before his throne. They won't finally get away with evil. But in this life, sometimes, sadly, people do get away with heinous evil. This is not a case of bad karma. This is a case of God in his mercy bringing them face to face with their sin. God is leading them to repentance and through painful circumstances, leading them to disclose their guilt. Friend, you realize that being brought face to face with the consequences of your sin is a moment of mercy from God, right? God confronting you with your sin face to face is a moment of mercy from Him to you. It's not a moment to avoid your guilt, but to confess your guilt to God. And it's not a moment to blame others for your guilt like Reuben attempts to do. I mean, did you see that? In verse 22, Reuben tries to skirt his responsibility in the matter by bringing out the old, I told you so line. It's kind of unbelievable. Just a, just a word of wisdom on that, I told you so line. It is only the very rare occasion that saying, I told you so, fits the occasion and gives grace to those who hear. It, that's going to be very rarely helpful. And if you feel like you need help with your words, maybe you say the wrong things sometimes at the wrong moments, just let me encourage you to come back tonight for our evening service. Our brother Derek, he's going to be preaching a short sermon. It's short, right? Short sermon on Ephesians 4.29. Uh, it's a wonderfully practical verse on what comes out of our mouths and how our words can help and heal and not hurt others. Uh, Reuben's kind of I told you so moment really only makes him look worse. If he was really insistent on not sinning against Joseph back then, then he wouldn't have been such an ineffectual leader. And he wouldn't have, off wouldn't he have offered himself for his brother instead? I mean, he would have said that this is going to emotionally destroy our father. We can't do this. We won't do this. I will die before I let you do this. Sometimes when we grapple with our guilt, we do so imperfectly and partially. It's sincere, even if it's imperfect and partial. And I think that Joseph, in verses 23 to 25, is beginning to see the grace of God at work in his brothers. They have disclosed their guilt. They've done so imperfectly and partially, but they have done so meaningfully. Right? Joseph can see that God is changing these brothers, and so he weeps. We should be hoping and looking for such transformation in others. And we should remember that true transformation is often slow. When Joseph speaks to his brothers there in verse 24, we're not told that he spoke roughly to them, only that he spoke to them. God seems to be softening Joseph's heart too. God is preparing Joseph for reconciliation with his brothers. God is preparing Joseph's heart to forgive them. I mean, look at the way that Joseph deals so generously with them. Joseph gives orders to fill their bags with grain and to put money back in every man's sack and to give them provision for the journey. None of that was necessary, but it was generous on the part of Joseph. It was a confidential blessing, as we're going to see. Joseph, he kind of keeps this gift secret for them to discover. And it's also the next phase of the test for them. Joseph, he has bound Simeon before their eyes. Why Simeon? I don't know. But he's bound Simeon before their eyes, and uh, he has kind of sent them off. He's bound him uh, kind of like he was bound and sent off by those traitors who took him down to Egypt. And they sold him for money, and he sends them with money. 
So do you see what Joseph is doing? He's kind of setting up the same situation that they faced years before. Would they desert their brother Simeon and deceive their father like they did before with him? Or would they show that they are men who feared God and tell the truth? Are they men who have been truly transformed by this disclosing of their guilt? Would they show that they're honest men by bringing Benjamin back to rescue Simeon? Friend, I wonder if you have been honest with yourself about your guilt before God. I mean, have you been broken before God over your sin? Have you grieved over your sin? And have you been changed by that experience? It's been said that it's not the absence of sin but the grieving over it which distinguishes the child of God from empty professors. J.C. Ryle, he once described the nature of repentance and its transformation like this. Repentance begins with the knowledge of sin. It goes on to work sorrow for sin. It leads to confession of sin before God. It shows itself before man through a thorough breaking off from sin. It results in producing a habit of deep hatred for all sin. And above all, it is inseparably connected with a lively faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance like this is a true characteristic of all Christians. Has God led you to himself and salvation in his son? Has the Lord Jesus Christ led you to honestly disclose your guilt? In verse 26, the brothers loaded their donkeys with their grain and they departed. The brothers faced the same test of integrity 20 years ago, and they failed. Would they pass the test now? Well, let's turn and consider our third and final point. God leads through dead ends. Follow along now as I read. Let's begin there in verse 26 and read to the end of the chapter. Genesis 42, there in verse 26. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, My money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob their father in the land of Canaan, they told him all that happens to them, saying, the man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me. And take grain for the famine of your households, and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men. And I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob their father 
said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Well, in these verses, we see the brothers return home and effectively return to the place where the entire narrative began, with them standing around, looking at one another, and not knowing what to do. If Jacob won't send Benjamin down to Egypt, then they've reached a dead end. The steps toward a dead end begin there in verse 26 to 28. At a rest stop along the way, one of the brothers discovers that not only does he have grain, but he also has the money that he was supposed to use to buy the grain. There are dozens of problems of this, not least of which is them being enriched and their brother being imprisoned. The fact that their brother was incarcerated in Egypt was going to be a big enough problem of its own. How are they going to explain to their father that they have this money while missing their brother? It's going to look like they sold their brother for grain and gold. Now notice the question at the end of verse 28. Trembling, they ask, what is this that God has done to us? The brothers now sense that God is after them for all of their misdeeds. And as far as I can tell, this is actually the first time that the brothers speak of God. They have lived a life that has really pushed God to the edges of their consciousness. And that is what has allowed them to suppress the truth in unrighteousness and to live as deceitful and dishonest men. You realize that pushing God to the edges of your consciousness allows for sins to well up and emerge. Friend, don't push God out of your life. His absence will affect your character, your conduct, and your eternal future. God is kindly leading these brothers to a dead end where they will have to deal with their deceit and their misdeeds. God is leading these brothers to himself because ultimately, God is the only one who can deal with our sin. In verses 29 to 35, they recount all that happened to them. And it's a harrowing tale, right? And they begin with the most imposing figure in the story, the man. And here y'all probably thought that the phrase the man had only been used to refer to authority figures just within the last couple of decades. No, right here. The brothers paint this true picture of the man, the Lord of the land. He did speak roughly to them. He did charge them with being spies. And in verse 33, they are sure to repeat this. They want to drive this home about this man, his severe treatment. And all of this is for the purpose of preparing their father for their request, right? For convincing their dad, Jacob, that they've actually got a good deal on the table. If they can just take Benjamin with them back to Egypt, then they'll not only be able to get Simeon out of land, but they'll also be able to trade in the land. Verse 34, they're attempting to persuade their dad that this is not a crisis, but an opportunity for wealth building. But do you notice what they left out? Did they happen to mention that on their way home, one of them discovered that they had money in a sack? Nope. They didn't say a single word about it. That part was studiously absent. Beloved, let us learn to lead with the truth, the whole truth, 
Leave none of it out. I mean, verse 35, it's the big reveal, isn't it? Maybe they could explain away one brother having money in his sack due to an Egyptian accounting area, right? Those silly Egyptians, they're terrible at math, right? But, but read verse 35 carefully. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they, it's like they're discovering it for the first time, that they all had it. They and their father saw their bundles of money. They were afraid. Every last man had his money. And Ian Duguid, he comments on this verse saying, here they were, once again, a brother short, with an incredible story and flush with cash. Now, how are they going to get out of this one? Now, if you, you read, remember verses uh, 36 to 38, you'll remember that Jacob, he kind of flies off the handle, doesn't he? He blames these men. I mean, look at verse 36. You have bereaved me of my children. Here, Jacob, he's speaking truer than he knew. Right? It's a full-on accusation. They're responsible for the loss of Joseph and Simeon. You can imagine kind of looking around at one another, wondering if Jacob knows what they all know. Does he know about what we did with Joseph? I mean, Jacob, he descends into despair. He says there at the end of verse 36, all of this has come against me. And what Jacob doesn't know is that God has done all of this because God is for him. Uh, this is how God is going to rescue him and his whole family from death. This is how God is going to preserve the line of the Messiah and keep his promises alive, not just to rescue men and women from physical death, but to rescue men and women from eternal death in hell. Beloved, the Lord Jesus Christ was put to death on the cross for sinners like you and me. His body was laid in a tomb, and the hope of salvation appeared to arrive literally at a dead end. But you know the rest of the story, don't you? On the third day, God the Father raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Dead ends are overcome by the Lord of life. So friend, if you're here this morning, you're not a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then I want to invite you to consider that God may be leading you to himself and salvation in his son. Maybe everything that has transpired in your life has taken place, not because God is against you, but because God is for you and because he's leading you to the Savior. Maybe God meant for those difficult circumstances in your life to expose your sin so that you would come to confess your sin and disclose your guilt. Maybe he meant for you to realize that you are at a dead end. And so you realize that you need his son, Jesus. Friend, turn from your sin and trust in the Lord Jesus today. Believe that Jesus lived for you and that he died for you and that he was raised from the grave for the forgiveness of your sins. And dear Christian, you must believe that God is for you, even when it seems like you're at a dead end. Beloved, remember the help and hope of Romans 8.28, where God's word tells us, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Remember the words of Romans 8.32, remember that if God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God is for you, even in the midst of calamity and difficulty. In verse 36, I mean, Reuben, what is his problem? I mean, he's added again with his poor timing intact. He knows that they have to go back to Egypt so he brashly offers 
the life of his two boys. What father does that? He, I mean, how is this going to help? It doesn't. I mean, man's plans of salvation are always ineffectual and pathetic. So, so realize that. If you're trying to get in good with God, that's not how he works. God is the one who makes salvation possible, not us. God is the great Savior. Jacob, as we see here, he wallows in his misery in verse 38. He not only declines to send Benjamin with the brothers, but he strikes back at his sons too. I mean, read, read verse 38, you'll see what I mean. But he said, my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead and he is the only one left. I mean, Jacob, what do you mean that he's the only one left? Don't you have nine other sons standing right there in front of you? And notice that Jacob says to his brother and not your brother. Jacob is kind of disowning his sons here. It's a cruel and cold reply. As it's often been said, hurt people hurt people. I mean, Jacob, he's definitely hurt his son through these words. Now, this is a dead end. And only God can get this family out of the pit of despair that they're in. We're back at square one. We're back right wherever this chapter began. Actually, we've almost kind of taken a step backwards. Not only uh, were they standing around at the beginning, they're standing around at the end. Now it's not the sons, it's not Jacob's sons, who are standing in the way of the family's well-being, but it's Jacob. The patriarch himself is the one who needs to not just stand there in his sorrow, but he needs to do something. Jacob needs to trust the Lord and give up his son. He needs to remember the power of God and his mighty deeds in the past. He needs to remember the promises of God. And that's what I want us to think about as we conclude. Beloved, Jacob was so consumed with his self and his sorrow that he had forgotten what had happened in the past when a member of the covenant family was imprisoned in Egypt. Back in Genesis chapter 12, Pharaoh had taken Sarah, Abraham's wife, captive. And what did the Lord do? The Lord confronted Pharaoh. The Lord made Pharaoh release Sarah. The Lord made Pharaoh weigh Abraham down with blessing and wealth. The Lord was leading Abraham to himself to show Abraham that he could be trusted, that God could be trusted to rescue his people and his promises. But what about giving up his son? Shouldn't Jacob have also trusted the Lord and been willing to give up Benjamin, his son, like Abraham was willing to give up Isaac? Abraham was willing to give up his son Isaac in that sacrifice, remember? Because he believed that God could raise the dead. The promises of God will never fail because God can never fail. Jacob has forgotten that the Lord is able to rescue his people and his promises. And in Genesis 42, the Lord was in the process of leading Jacob to himself. God was showing Jacob that he can be trusted with Jacob's sons and with his divine promises to bring the Messiah through them. And when we find ourselves in difficult circumstances, when we find ourselves heavy with sin, perhaps at a dead end like Jacob, our God calls us to remember his mighty deeds of the past and his promises for the present and of the future. And that's actually what we're going to do in the Lord's Supper in just a few moments. 
We're going to remember what God has done in Jesus Christ to save us. And we're going to remember that Jesus is going to come again and take us to himself. Beloved, your whole life is one of God leading you through difficult circumstances, through confessing your guilt, and out of dead ends to himself. Beloved, keep following his leading. Because in the end, you will find him. He is your life's goal. And you will find that he is your soul's reward. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray and ask that you would cause us to treasure you and your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, above all. Father, when your hand leads in mysterious ways that we don't understand, give us faith to trust you. Help us to trust that you know exactly what you're doing and you know exactly where you're leading. Father, we pray and ask that you'd help us to see your great love for us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.